Interstate Killer, the original Night Stalker, Visalia Ransacker, East Area Rapist, the East Bay Rapist, and the Diamond Knot Killer. He stalked, raped, robbed and murdered throughout the 70s and 80s, and up until the 25th of April 2018, he was walking the streets as a free man. On this special edition, I'll give a brief background to the case and go over the latest details. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. saw this coming, especially 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, former sailor, cop and mechanic. Arrested at his Citrus Heights home on Canyon Oak Drive just six days after becoming a person of interest. And on his arrest, he told police, I've got a roast in the oven. Now, for those unfamiliar with the case, I will go over the basics as this episode is just not long enough to be able to tell you the full story in any detail whatsoever. I will guide you to Criminology Podcast, which is a brilliant in-depth documentary by Mike Morford and Mike Ferguson. As I said in the intro, around 1974, there there were a series of burglaries, prowler incidents and at least one murder in the Visalia area in San Joaquin Valley of California. Approximately 230 miles or 370 kilometres southeast of San Francisco and 190 miles or 310 kilometres north of Los Angeles. In most of his crimes, the perp would break into a place and ransack inside while stealing only small items. In the first recorded incident, he broke into the house and stole a piggy bank with about 50 bucks worth of coins. He would also go through people's stuff, vandalise it. He liked going through women's panties and would steal lots of low-value things while ignoring banknotes or high-value items. He would often rearrange items in the house, so it looks like he took his time while inside. He would steal blue chip stamps. Now, I think they are like loyalty stamps, like loyalty points you get on cards now. Uh, Single earrings or cufflinks and personal mementos, such as rings or medallions. He also stole six guns and various types of ammo. Now, the common MOs of the burglaries included attempting to pry open multiple points of entry, particularly windows, leaving multiple points of escape open, especially windows as well as house, garage and garden doors, moving window screens that he had removed onto beds or into bedrooms, 
placing warning items such as dishes or bottles against doors and on door handles, wearing gloves uh, given the absence of fingerprints, fingerprint evidence, scaling fences and moving through established routes such as parks, walkways, ditches and trails. Now, if you know anything about the Golden State Killer or East Area Rapist, then this MO is very familiar. So after around 18 months, simple burglaries turn to murder. On September the 11th, 1975, a man who is strongly believed to be the ransacker broke into the home of Claude Snelling, 45, at 532 Whitney Lane. Claude had previously chased a prowler discovered under his daughter's window on the night of February February the 5th, 1975. Claude was awakened about 2.22am by strange noises in his home. Upon leaving his bedroom, Claude shouted and ran through the open back door and confronted a ski-masked intruder in his carport attempting to kidnap his daughter Beth, who'd been threatened not to make a sound or she'd be killed. Claude was then shot twice, staggered back into the house to his wife and later died. After the shooting, the assailant fled the scene, leaving behind a stolen bicycle at 615 Redwood Street. And again, this incident will be familiar in its MO with those of the East Area Rapist, and I'll get onto that in a minute. After this murder, the Visalia Police Department also committed more resources to catching the ransacker and a $4,000 reward was posted. Nighttime stakeups were set up near houses that he'd previously prowled, but the ransacking continued. Around 8.30pm on December 12, 1975, a masked man entered the backyard of a house at 1505 West Kawi Avenue, near where the ransacker had been reported. Detective William McGowan was on stakeout inside the garage and attempted to detain the man. The suspect shrieked, removed his mask and faked his surrender after McGowan fired a warning shot. However, the suspect jumped the fence to House 1501, then pulled out a gun with his left hand and fired it once near McGowan's face, shattering his torch. Other cops rushed to help McGowan and the shooter was able to escape. Evidence items collected included the torch, tennis shoe tracks and dropped loot, which happened to be blue chip stamps and a blue sock full of coins. So that was a brief background of the Visalia ransacker as he was known at the time. Now, just a side note, as you can imagine, not all cases would have been reported to police. So, although he's suspected to have committed more than 100 crimes, there may have been many more. 
That last incident was on the de- on December the 12th, 1975. But now we go to the first known attack from the perp who would become known as the East Area Rapist on Friday the 18th of June, 1976. This first attack happened in Rancho Cordova, which is a city in Sacramento County, California, which is about 250 miles or 400 kilometres northwest of Visalia, where the ransacking was occurring. Again, I won't go into detail for each of the cases, other than to say that they followed a similar MO to the Visalia ransacking cases. Initially, he would stalk women who lived or would be alone in single-storey houses. He would put in a lot of recon and planning before each attack. Victims would often be called on the phone days or months before an attack. He would peep into their windows. He would break into the homes of future victims to conduct reconnaissance, unlock windows, unload guns and plant binding ligatures, usually shoelaces, and he would use these during the attack. After the attack, he would often call the victims and taunt them, telling them he was going to harm them again. I mean, this guy is pretty much a sick motherfucker. Anyway, although he initially targeted women either alone in their homes or with children, he later came to attack couples instead. He would break in through a window or a sliding glass door and then wake up the sleeping couples with a torch which he would shine in their eyes while threatening them with a handgun. He wore a ski mask and would disguise his voice by growling through the mask at his victims. Sort of like this. Don't matter, I'll fucking kill you! Victims were then bound, usually with shoelaces that he found or brought with him. He would then blindfold and or gag the victims with towels that he'd taken from the house and ripped into strips. The female was usually forced to tie up her male companion first before being tied up next. In many cases, these bindings were made so tightly that the victims had no feeling in their hands for hours after they were untied. He would then separate the couple, often stacking dishes on the backs of the males, stating that if he heard the dishes rattle, he would kill everyone in the house. He would then move the female to the living room and often rape her repeatedly, sometimes over the course of several hours. One common recollection that the victims had was that he would tie their hands behind their backs, place them on the floor on their stomachs, and put his dick into their hands and tell them to play with it. Now, all of them said he had a tiny little dick. He would spend hours in the home, ransacking closets and drawers, eating food in the kitchen, drinking beer, raping the female again, or returning to utter more threats to the victims. He would steal stuff from the victims as well, usually personal objects and items of minimal monetary value, 
although he stole cash and guns as well. He would then take off, usually jumping fences, riding a bike or driving off in a car. He obviously knew his way around as he would utilise parks, schoolyards, creek beds and other open spaces that allowed him to stay off the street. So just going through the timeline of his attacks from what was known as the East Area Rapist, now these were all in 1976. There's June 18, July 17, August 29, September 4, October 5, October 9, October 18, another October 18, November 10, December 18. Now these are in 1977. January 18, January 24, February 7, February 16, March 8, March 18, April the 2nd, April 15, May 3, May the 5th, May 14, May 17, May 28. Now at this point, there's a three-month break. It then continues at September the 6th, October the 1st, October 21st, October 29, November 10 and December the 2nd. Now we get into 1978. It starts off at January 28. Now there's February the 2nd. Now this is where Brian and Katie Maggiore were murdered. So that wasn't just a break, enter and rape. Then we get to the March 18, April 14, and then the attacks move out of Sacramento. Now they move to Modesto and Davis. And this is on June the 5th, 1978, June the 7th, June the 23rd, June the 24th, July 6th. Now after a three-month break, the attacks move to the Contra, Contra Costa County. That's October the 7th, 1978, October the 13th, October 28, November 4, December 2, December 9. Finally, we get to 1979. It's April 5th, June 2nd, June 11, June 25 and July 5th. So that's a list of the reported attacks. As we all know, rape is a very underreported crime. So there may be so many more attacks that just didn't get reported. So if there's around 50 reported, he may have been responsible for hundreds of attacks on women. And this means you either live alone or you have a job where you can get out and about by yourself. I'll get to that a little bit later on. So now we get to what would be termed the original Night Stalker crimes. These all happened around the Southern California area, areas between Golet, Santa Barbara County, down to Dana Point, Orange County. Now, on Monday, October the 1st, 1979, Queen Anne Lane, Goleta, Santa Barbara County, there was an, an attempted murder and botched attack. On Sunday, the December, on December the 30th, 1979, Galetta, Santa Barbara County, Dr. Robert Offerman, 44, and Dr. Deborah Alexandra Manning, 35, 
were found shot dead at Offerman's condominium on Avenida Pequina in Galetta. Thursday, March 13, 1980, Ventura, Ventura County. Charlene Smith, 33, and Lyman Smith, 43, who was about to be appointed as a judge, were found murdered in their home in Ventura. Charlene Smith had also been raped. A log from the fireplace was used to bludgeon both the victims to death. In Tuesday, August 19, 1980, at Dana Point, Orange County, Keith Eli Harrington, 24, and Patrice Briscoe Harrington, 27, were found bludgeoned to death in their home on Cockleshell Drive in the Nigel Shores gated community in Dana Point. Patrice Harrington had also been raped. Friday, February the 6th, 1981, Irvine, Orange County. Manuela Whithoom, 28, was raped and murdered in her home in Irvine. Monday, July 27, 1981, back in Galetta, Santa Barbara County. Sherry Domingo, 35, and Gregory Sanchez, 27, became the 10th and 11th murder victims of the original Night Stalker. Both were attacked in Domingo's house on Toltec Way in Galetta. Saturday, May 4th, 1986, Irvine, Orange County. Janelle Lisa Cruz, 18, was found raped and bludgeoned to death in her Irvine home. Her family was on vacation in Mexico at the time of the attack. And then it all stopped. Now I'll talk about my theories on this a bit later as well. In 2001, DNA was used to link the East Area Rapist to the original Night Stalker murders, but the link to the Vesalia Ransacker cases was not yet established. And this is where I'll come to a book I'm sure you've now heard about by Michelle McNamara. Michelle named the perp the Golden State Killer. In March 2013, Los Angeles Magazine published Michelle McNamara's In the Footsteps of a Killer about her quest to track down the Golden State Killer. The story landed McNamara a book deal but in 2016, at 46 years of age, she died unexpectedly in her sleep. The manuscript was completed by her husband and the book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark was released on February the 27th, 2018. It's sad that Michelle didn't live to see the events that have unfolded over the last few days. Now, personally, I haven't read the book, but I'm quite keen to do so. On June the 15, 2016, the FBI and local law enforcement agencies held a news conference to announce a nationwide effort and a $50,000 reward for his capture. Now, 50000 bucks it's not much at all, seeing as how much they must have spent over the years trying to catch the cunt. Anyway. So now we know what was done. Let's get back to 72-year-old Joseph James D'Angelo, former sailor, cop and mechanic, arrested at his Citrus Heights home on Canyon Oak Drive just six days 
after becoming a person of interest in the Golden State Killer case. So digging around on newspapers.com, there's quite a few references to D'Angelo. Anyway, he was born November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York, the son of Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. and Kathleen Louise de Groot. He attended Folsom High School and got his GED in 1964. He then graduated from Sacramento State University with a degree in criminal justice. Interesting. D'Angelo then joined the Navy in the 60s and served on the USS Canberra in Vietnam. On the 1st of June 1967, there's an article about D'Angelo on his return from Vietnam. He is pictured in his sailor suit and the caption says, Joseph J. D'Angelo, damage controlman second class, serving aboard the USS Canberra, is expected to dock at San Diego today, following service on the gun line off North Vietnam. Now, maybe Carol Laverty would know exactly what a damage controlman does, but apparently he did lose part of his finger while on duty. Now, Wikipedia says... Navy DCs or damage controlmen do the work necessary for damage control, ship stability, firefighting, fire prevention and chemical, biological and radiological warfare defence. They also instruct personnel in the methods of damage control and chemical, biological and radiological defence and repair damage control equipment and systems. So, bit of a handyman. On Orb- and the Auburn Journal, 14th of May 1970, there was an announcement of D'Angelo and Bonnie Jean Colwell to be married, although there was no date set at the time. It goes on to say, Bonnie was the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Stanley B. Colwell of rural Auburn, and D'Angelo was the son of Mrs. Jack Basanko of Auburn and Joseph J. D'Angelo Sr. of Korea. Now, this is a bit weird because in other records, as I said before, he's the son of Joseph James D'Angelo Sr. and Kathleen Louise de Groot. Never mind. Miss Colwell was graduated from Del Oro High School and Sierra College where she is a lab assistant in the science department. She is affiliated with the Life Sciences Club, AGS, Honor Society and the President's Honor Roll. Young D'Angelo is a graduate of Folsom High School and Sierra College. He is employed by Sierra Crane and Hoist Company of Newcastle. He is affiliated with the Vets Club, AGS, President's Honor Roll and the International Diving Association. However, Bonnie and D'Angelo would not end up getting married. Here's another press clipping. On the 12th of August 1973, Bonnie ends up marrying Michael Graf Ultzen at the Sunset Community Covenant Church in Rockland. Bonnie wore a white emperor Poe de Soy gown with Venice lace and seed pearls on the bodice, cuffs and ham. Her headpiece was of the same material and handmade by the bride. Wow, she sure dodged a bullet. 
Now, as you may know, it was reported by some of the victims that they could hear D'Angelo whimpering or crying and it's thought that he mentioned Bonnie's name. Maybe Bonnie was his real true love and her rejection D'Angelo just couldn't get over. We go to the 7th of November 1973. There was a marriage notice for D'Angelo 27 of Exeter, Tulare County and Sharon M. Huddle 20 of Citrus Heights. They would end up having three children. I won't go into the wife and children as I'm sure they're struggling to deal with the events of this past week as it is. D'Angelo also worked as a police officer in Exeter near Vesalia from 1973 to 1976. Now, this was at the time the Vesalia ransacker was burglarizing homes. So his being a police officer was a true advantage for him to avoid getting found out. After leaving Exeter, D'Angelo worked for the Auburn Police Department from 1976 to 1979. Now this is the East Area Rapist period. Again, he was a policeman while committing the crimes. Auburn Journal 1979, we see where D'Angelo was busted trying to steal a hammer and some dog repellent from the pay-and-save store off Greenback Lane in Citrus Heights. Now, looking back, you can see why he wanted a can of dog repellent, probably to spray around so that any tracking dogs would not go after him. I don't know. He ended up getting fired from his job as a cop, and he reportedly didn't request an administrative hearing, which at the time was seen as a bit strange. Almost like he just wanted the ordeal to go away so the spotlight wasn't on him. Now after 1979 when he gets fired from the police force, this is where the original Night Stalker period of murders starts. Now since 1990, he's worked as a mechanic at a Save Mart distribution centre in Roseville and had recently retired. On the 25th of April, law enforcement swooped on D'Angelo's Citrus Heights residence after confirming a DNA match with that of the Golden State Killer. As I said before, he was taken by surprise and told police, but I have a roast in the oven. The arresting cop replied, Boom Vakalunga, you're busted, Joe. Now, here are a few of the interviews I came across. From CBS News, an interview with a former work colleague. He seemed like a nice guy. It's just mind-blowing. This was Tim Murisette. Murisette had worked with D'Angelo at Save Mart. He said D'Angelo just retired last year and he can't believe he's allegedly tied to some of the most horrific crimes imaginable. But how many times do we hear that? He used to get vertigo and couldn't get out of bed sometimes, so he had to stay home. When you talk to him, you just never thought. He's been with the company for years. Oh my God, he said. Save Mart confirmed D'Angelo's employment, releasing a statement saying, None of his actions in the workplace would have led us to suspect any connection to crimes being attributed to him. 
Ron Osborne, D'Angelo's brother-in-law, said, I was absolutely flabbergasted. Osborne says the family is in disbelief. When you see the picture of someone you know so very close, there's that shock element. And to look at Joe, I never suspected. We had a family-type relationship. We joked, we hunted, went boating, and none of this would rear its head as being a personality trait. He said D'Angelo has three adult children and is married but separated from Sharon Huddle. And she's an attorney from Citrus Heights. Osborne says he was a family man. We played cards at the house, had family nights. It's sad and tragic, but my heart goes out to his immediate family, no matter what the situation was at home. It's still a shock and awe in that. It really does seem that the worst monsters can be the person living next door that you would never suspect as being the person they really are inside. Anyway, neighbours told reporters, We knew him as Joe, was an odd man with a loud voice, a penchant for puttering in his front yard and a reputation for a bad temper. One neighbour said, D'Angelo threatened to deliver a load of death because he was enraged by a barking dog. Others said the portly 72-year-old would shout obscenities in his front yard when some chore went awry. It gave some neighbours a sense that the man in the trim ranch-style house with the immaculate front lawn was quirky, complex and troubled, and that he was prone to outbursts and yelling curse words. He used to like the F word a lot. Looks like he suffered from the Cambo rage a bit. Sacramento County District Attorney Anne-Marie Schubert announced charges have already been filed against D'Angelo for the 1978 double murder. He's also facing murder charges out of Ventura County for the deaths of Charlene and Lyman Smith on March 13, 1980. Orange County prosecutors told the Associated Press that D'Angelo was additionally charged in the 1980 killings of Keith and Patrice Harrington in Dana Point. He's also charged with raping and killing 28-year-old Manuela Withern Withern in 1981 and 18-year-old Janelle Cruz in 1986. He was formally arraigned on two murder charges dating back to 1978. On Friday, he faced court for the first time. He appeared in an orange prison jumpsuit, handcuffed to a wheelchair. Now this is from the BBC. D'Angelo spoke only briefly in court to confirm he had a lawyer. He did not enter a plea and was denied bail. Sacramento County Sheriff Scott Jones said Mr. D'Angelo is on suicide watch in the psychiatric ward of the county jail. If convicted, he could face the death penalty. Some survivors were present in court for the hearing as well as victims' friends and family members. One woman was pictured holding up a picture of two of the Golden State Killer's victims 
Sherry Domingo and Greg Sanchez. Mr. D'Angelo's next court appearance is scheduled for 14th of May. Authorities have said more charges are likely to be filled in due course. Now where all this goes is anyone's guess. The cunt's so old, he'll probably cark it before any of the court cases finish, especially, especially if they go for the death penalty. I reckon they need to let him rot in jail for as long as possible. He's terrified the population for nearly 50 years, living the whole time a free man. I think the only thing that stopped him was the fact that he knew that he would eventually get caught by advances in technology and law enforcement. He had a good run and was undetected, so it was time to retire from raping and murdering. This is also why I think that although he has obvious personality issues, I don't think he has a mental illness that would cause him to do what he did. He was able to stop and go cold turkey, which must have been a big life change after the decade-long rampage he was on. Now, at this point, I want to read out a post from Criminology Podcast's Facebook page. Now, I reach out to Dawn Lehrer, who posted today, and she gave me permission to reproduce it. Okay, she, she wrote, Hi. I just joined this group and thought I would tell my story. In 78 or 79, the East Area Rapist showed up at our house in Stockton late at night after my dad left for work. I had a friend stay over and we were all in my younger brother's room, camped out on the floor. We started hearing noises outside the window and when we looked out there was a man in a mask. We screamed and went to my mum's room and started hearing noises in the back of the house. We saw a dark figure in the backyard. We called police and also my teenage brother to come over. My brother got there about five minutes later. During that time we just kept trying to keep track of the guy. My brother found my dad's shotgun and looked out my window and there was the guy with the mask looking at him. When the police arrived the guy was gone. They assumed he jumped over the back fences. While the police interviewed us, I remembered a guy being parked just down the street from us for for close to a week. And he even chased me on my bike at one point. They showed me the sketches and I knew it was the same guy. I was only eight at the time, but to this day, I cannot look out a window after dark. She went on to say, We had hang-ups. Also... The truck had been seen at another location. Also, I recognised him in this sketch. She went on to say, I saw him daily for about a week, but it was the 70s. We weren't hypervigilant. She also went on to say, I don't remember the little details. I know we called my dad and he was not at work yet. We also called my brother and somehow the cops. We received hang-up calls, but didn't think anything of it. After listening to criminology, I realised we had quite a few before. He would also just stare at me when I would ride my bike past him. Now, she also said, I've never really spoken about it until recently when a friend asked why I'm insanely afraid of looking out the window at night. 
I told her and she told me about this podcast. Honestly, I was young and I didn't know who the East Area Rapist was and I think my trauma then was not as bad as recently when I after listening to the podcast. I sure did not know at the time how lucky we were to get away. I did have a friend staying over. Maybe she has spoken about it. We weren't allowed to see each other after that. Wow, Islanders. Now, of course, it's hard to verify these things, but I do believe it is genuine. And thanks, Dawn, for sharing your experience. Now, another post I saw today on the Gen Y group in regards to the way they ended up catching D'Angelo using DNA. Now, this is from Genevieve Byrne, and thank you very much for letting me read this out because you say it so much better than I would have described it. Anyway, PSA about the Golden State Killer's DNA match from your friendly neighbourhood genealogy nerd and former biology major. I know there's been a couple of links shared and some comments written, but I know there's still some confusion in the group and I'm hoping this can be a helpful basic explanation of the situation. The authorities used GED Match, a public and free database where people can upload their raw genetic data obtained from another source, like a private company such as Ancestry or 23andMe. This means law enforcement did not collect a sample from Golden State Killer's daughter or relative or anyone to make this particular match. On GED Match, people upload their raw genetic data, which you can download from Ancestry or 23andMe or wherever. Then you can do a one-to-one or a one-to-many comparison. One-to-one comparisons require you know who you want to compare with, whereas one-to-many comparisons allow you to compare your data to many people's without an idea of who you're looking for. So, law enforcement most likely had Golden State Killer's DNA uploaded to GED Match for a while now. That's what Michelle McNamara implied in her book. And they checked the one-to-many comparisons frequently. Golden State Killer had a distant relative who was probably a genealogy buff or interested in genealogy and had access to their raw genetic data, probably via, again, 23andMe or Ancestry. This distant relative uploaded their raw genetic data, also known as DNA code, to GED match, leading to law enforcement noticing that it was a partial distant relative match to the Golden State Killer data they had already uploaded to the site. GED match is public and free. People upload their entire genetic data to it and and it's there for anyone to access. Whereas Ancestry and 23andMe are private and have never allowed law enforcement to access their information databases. I hope that's clear. Ancestry, 23andMe was not the way this happened. Thanks for letting me nerd out and educate the masses. Stay sexy and be careful or not and help find serial killers with your raw generic genetic data. Thanks Genevieve on explaining how the cops got the DNA to make a match. 
So, what do you think, Islanders? Get on the website and have a chat about this. I know it was very basic. It's only just happened over the last couple of days, so I've only just been able to put together what I can today uh, to get some sort of idea on what's been going on. What a week it's been. My inbox has gone mad, and I hate to think how Mike Morford and Mike Ferguson have been. You must go to their Criminology podcast if you haven't already listened. It is so much more detailed than I could ever do in one episode. Crazy to be in the middle of the series they're producing about a serial rapist and killer that's been on the run for 40 years with no leads at all. And for it to all suddenly blow up like this and for the perp to be in custody. Of course... Even scum like D'Angelo are innocent until proven guilty, but I'm sure he's confessed already and the DNA ID gonna send him on the karma bus to boom vagalunga. Also, Case File has done a series. I think it came out last year and I heard it's worth a listen. So, Islanders, that's my bit on the Golden State Killer. And that's the end of the show and I'd like to first thank everyone for voting in the Australian Podcast Awards. The island has made it into the top 10 finalists for the popular vote. So if you haven't voted yet, go to australianpodcastsawards.com and then click on the popular vote link and vote for the island. You have to register first, which I've heard is a little bit tricky. So it's the australianpodcastawards.com. Please help us out. We're going to get there voting closes Sunday night which may be Saturday in your part of the world well you need to register as I said but that's reasonably easy get your co-workers to vote and your significant others it's your island and I want to shout boom faralanga to the world for you all the island is a true indie podcast and isn't run by a huge network full of staff it's a true sit in the deck chair and tell a story podcast I would like to also mention that my great mates Tara and Barney from Bloody Murder are also finalists as well as being nominated in the comedy section. Brod from Felon is also in the top 10 for the popular vote. Again, these guys are true indie podcasters. You can vote for more than one podcast, so mm, share the love. We'll take plenty of pickies when we are together and we will upload them. So please, there's only hours left to vote. Get that vote in. It will make a difference. I want to give a big shout out again this week to Maggie James. It's one of the best supporters of the island. Can we all give a shout out again to Maggie tonight? Also to the new Patreon supporters and upgraders to the island, a big shout out to Jody Peterson and McKaylee Watson. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island for where for as little as a dollar a month you can become a patron. All funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal and you can do that by typing paypal.me forward slash true crime island. If you want stickers, koozies, pins or keyrings, you need to email me directly. My email is cambo at truecrimeisland.com and I can price it up for you according to postage. This week I will bundle together a pack and price it up once the pins and keyrings arrive, which hopefully is this week. 
all other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage. All that stuff is via the shop at truecrimeisland.threadless.com. I just got the tote bag, as I said, a couple of over the last few weeks for Kate. It's really good. Thanks to everyone who has brought some swag. Don't forget, True Crime Island is totally commercial free for all and survives on listener donations. I will keep it commercial free other than running promos for other podcasts at the end of the show. There's links for everything at my website, which is truecrimeisland.com. Again, you don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. The more people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, then show them the way and get them to vote. Join the Facebook group, just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. Don't forget to check out the Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there. And there's so many more podcasts you'll find. And hi to all the followers. This week's promo is for Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. I really love this one and you will as well. Also, I have another promo for Yours in Murder podcast. Do yourself a favour and check it out. Well, that's about it for tonight. So, this has been Cambo, and you've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. It's true. So strange. Usually. I can't imagine what that's like. Do you want to? That could never happen to me. It might. Lock him away. He's pure evil. Or insane. Or human. My name's Kate. I have worked as a forensic psychologist, as well as in prisons and as a crisis clinician. My job was to figure out who gets locked up and who gets a key to find the humanity in inhumane situations. So, are you sure you really want to know? Yeah. Maybe. Because by the end of the episodes, you just might end up thinking... I felt better before I knew that. You can find me at IWB Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, sometimes Instagram, or you can email me at iwbpodcast at gmail.com. What do you want in a true crime podcast? Do you want well-researched material, but an easy-to-follow format? 
Do you want a bit of dark humor, but want sensitive topics handled, well, sensitively? Do you want hosts who are lactose intolerant, but eat macaroni and cheese anyway? Well, I think you might be looking for us. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca, and we're the hosts of the true crime podcast, Yours in Murder. And this isn't any old true crime podcast. I have a background in forensic science. And I have a background in journalism, so we're able to combine our knowledge and bring you interesting new perspectives on cases. Not that we're all serious. We have a bit of a dark sense of humor. Just a bit. I mean, we like morbid jokes and cat jokes. Lots of cat jokes. So if you're looking for something new and a bit out of the ordinary, check out Yours in Murder. You can find us on all of your favorite podcatchers, as well as iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, or check out our website at yoursinmurder.net. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, we are Yours in Murder.